So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Bible study uh, from Christchurch, Jerusalem, as we continue to study the book of Deuteronomy, looking at Moses' final words, his last speech, the longest monologue in all of the Bible, where he makes uh, an interesting comment upon the first four books of the Torah as he is preparing his people, God's people, to enter the land of Canaan, to um, not only to occupy and conquer, but to establish a just and humane and uh, God-fearing society in the image of God that would be a light to the nations. And so this book is probably uh, one of the most powerful books in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and it is the one that is most quoted of in the New Testament and, and Second Temple uh, periods. So we will begin in an honorary Christian fashion. That is, uh, we will begin with prayer. Okay. Father Neville? Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, the time set aside to come together around your word. Father, we pray that you'd lead us by your Holy Spirit, and particularly you'd anoint Aaron and his understanding and his communication. Father, thank you for the technology that allows us to do this. But above all, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that enlightens things and, and shines the light on your word and speaks to our spirits as well. So, Father, we give this time over to you. We pray that you would bless us richly. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week was Tisha B'Av. So we had a special little break where we had a little look at the religious festival. And we studied a holiday that's not in uh, the Bible per se. And uh, on a date that's also not in the Bible per se. Boy, what does that sound like? I'm going with Christmas. Okay, there are other, uh, it's not just the, the, the Christians who add things to calendars on the wrong day. Okay, um, uh, it is also something that happens in uh, the Jewish Christian tradition. Um, and if you would like to look at or listen to that, then the podcast is online, uh, up and running, as are, if you don't want to sit through uh, several hours of, of study, there are four videos which are approximately 18 to 20 minutes combined in length, which are now on the Christchurch website or the Facebook page. You do not need Facebook to, uh, to actually access them. And uh, there those five, four videos look at um, uh, Tisha B'Av and some of the things that we, we contemplated uh, last week. So a couple of weeks ago, we had finished Deuteronomy 13, which was uh, an essentially a large chapter based upon idolatry. And so here's a summary. Um, from several weeks ago, hope you guys uh, can remember. <clears throat> if not, listen along. So here's the summary from what we wrestled together from a couple of weeks ago. The last words of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Moses continues to spell out in detail the different ways the Israelites might be enticed to worship other gods. Because idolatry threatened the very existence of Israel, it had to be totally purged from the community. Idolatry was already ingrained in the national story of Israel since the days of the exodus from Egypt. The Ten Commandments explicitly forbids the worship of any God other than God. 
The nation had previously engaged in Avodah Zorah, idol worship, literally translated as strange worship, with the golden calf. Further in the past of the patriarchs, we see that Rachel had stolen the idols of her father Laban. And when Jacob was commanded by God to remove idolatry from his household, then Rachel died. Perhaps Rachel was indeed Jacob's idol. For it is actually Leah who produces Judah and the line of Davidic kings and ultimately the Messiah. Yet it remains that Rachel is venerated with a tomb. Moses now connects idolatry with prophets and dream diviners. Israel has experience with both figures, the prophet and the dreamer. Both figures have power and can perform miracles and signs. Moses, Aaron and Miriam are prophets. And Joseph is known as a master of dreamers in Genesis. Magic is a real phenomenon in the world, though largely in the hands of non-Israelites. The magicians of Egypt could mimic the first two plagues. And Balaam, the non-Israelite, had the gift of prophecy. According to Jewish tradition and the book of Enoch, magic was a form of wisdom from heaven meant solely for the realm of heaven, yet was brought to earth and taught to men by the fallen angel Ammoniel, which translates as God is my fortress. Armoni El. Magic, while real, is forbidden to the people of God. Moses warns that even should the prophet or the dreamer bring a sign or perform a miracle, they are not to be followed if they suggest worship of any God other than God. Why are these false miracles permitted to happen? Moses says that God is testing the hearts of men to see if they will truly follow him. Our obedience is expressed through the action of loving God with heart and soul. The Torah and the commandments are witnesses of God in the world and obedience reflects the closeness of God with his people. This is expressed before in chapter 4. God now introduces the death penalty for promoting idolatry and false gods. The nature of Israel is that its leadership have been put in place by divine appointment. Israel in the Bible is not a democracy. Democracy itself is a concept that is not found in the pages of Scripture. Spiritual and civil responsibilities are intertwined in the role of the leader of Israel. Thus, Heresy and spiritual deception receive civil punishment. And in the case of idolatry, the punishment is in the extreme. No pity is to be given to the one who causes idolatry in the community. Should the heretic be a member of, of a family, then the initial executioner must come from the family in question. And we see this practice continuing today in the Islamic and Hindu worlds of honor killings. Finally, Moses directs whole towns and villages engaged in idolatry to completely destroy. And we see this performed later by the Maccabean kings in the late Second Temple period. 
The first temple is said to have been destroyed because of idolatry. Returning from exile in Babylon, the religious leadership of Israel became adept in fighting many forms of idolatry. And in the New Testament, we find the practice of idolatry continues to be detestable. Thus, Jesus is condemned as a blasphemer and Stephen is executed in misplaced zeal for the God of Abraham. And in the modern period of current Israel, the Orthodox Jewish world sees Christianity and Messianic Jews as idol worshippers to be opposed in many ways, including violence for the misguided sake of heaven. I think that's a fair summary from several weeks ago. So two weeks ago, Moses was wrestling with the concept of idolatry as he was preparing his people to enter the land. And idolatry came with very extreme punishment. The next chapter brings in an issue of clean and unclean, which we have seen before in, uh, in the Torah, yet comes with no form of punishment, which is going to be interesting. So let's read the chapter. So Deuteronomy chapter um, 14. I'm reading from um, an NIV, but it really doesn't matter what version we're all following. Moses says, You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or have a divided hoof, you may not eat uh, the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales. But anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat, for it is unclean. You may not eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. Or you may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, oh my gosh, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. All flying insects are unclean to you, do not eat them, but any winged creature that is clean you may eat. Do not eat anything you already find dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it. You may sell it to any uh, other foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produced for that year. Eat the tenth of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling of his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord your God will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or any other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So that's the, the chapter that we're going to try and wrestle with. So based on an initial surface reading, is there anything there that jumps out? without trying to think too hard about it. Is there anything that jumps out from... Uh, Drunkenness seems to be acceptable. Say that again, David. Drunkenness seems to be acceptable under certain circumstances. Yes. the Well, definitely the drinking of fermented drinks and alcohol is acceptable. Yes, under certain circumstances. Correct. And, and almost encouraged in a certain place. It's I was thinking like, no, Noah in this line. Set up a bunch of weather spoons in Jerusalem and said, right, I'm going to make sure everybody comes here and uh, has to spend money. <laughs> yes. I, I was thinking of Noah more or less in this line too. So, Yeah, okay, yes. Because his drunkenness caused problems, yet, yet here it seems to be, well, drunkenness doesn't seem to be encouraged, but, but the drinking of fermented drinks is, which is an interesting thought. Um, and has an interesting history attached to it um, as well. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, to do with the after three years, the ties after three years. Yes, yeah. not so often emphasised, and I, that just sort of jumped out at me because you you have ties after seven years and those sort of things. And you have the and then years of jubilee, but this tithe after three years for the local Levites. Well, at least that's how it comes across. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to look that one up because I was going, hang on, how, how many tithes are we talking about here? I'm really confused. Make a, start making a little list. Um, it, it doesn't seem as clear, but there is this special one that occurs every three years, yeah, yeah. which is over and above yeah. other tithes. Aaron, the one that uh, caught my attention was just in verse 1, how it said about cutting yourself or baldness, for the forehead, on the, uh, baldness on the foreheads for the dead. Yeah. They worship today a lot of the, the rabbis. There's a lot of um, worship for the dead as a form of idolatry today in rabbinical Judaism. Yes, rabbinical Judaism actually um, very much honors uh, dead dead heroes. And so you have pilgrimages to um, the grave sites of rabbis, mm -hmm. um, which might sound sort of weird in, in our tradition, 
but they do, and they and it's not just one or two. We're talking tens and, and, and thousands of people flocking to the tombs of rabbis, um, and many of these rabbis are actually buried in, in one or two central places, um, which which then become quite quite holy. And you wonder where does this practice come from? Um, because it certainly wasn't around in the Second Temple period. It's a, it's a very late, it's a late tradition. Uh, but it's certainly around today. Aaron, may I, may I ask a question? Uh, if the, here, here we see that if you cannot make it, you're able to turn whatever you've got into silver, right? And buy whatever you want and have a good time, right? Yeah. What, what makes a person not want to do that all the time? In, in, in and in instead of Jerusalem, so yeah, yeah, no, good question. There doesn't seem to be a check and a balance here at the, at the moment, um, but but definitely we're going to have to ask that question when we get to that verse. It's a good it's a good thought. What's to stop you from never coming and just changing everything into silver? Yeah, good question. I I, I found this passage interesting when I started reading it. That the first verse seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the chapter. You know, it just starts off, oh, by the way, don't have, have different burial customs. And now on to food, you know, um, which <laughs> you go, okay, what, what was that first bit for? Um, let's, let's think about um, where Moses comes from. Where was Moses raised? What's the obvious What's question? Egypt. Egypt. Raised in Egypt. And what did the Egyptians love to value in terms of their theology of the afterlife? They're bald and they love, they love mummies. Yeah. They, they, they had a death cult. And, and so they had a, a well-developed theology based around death. So you had these giant pyramids you had a well-developed uh, theology about um, going to the underworld and having your heart weighed on a scale and, you know, and being drawn off into the afterworld and, and all that kind of stuff. So they're obsessed with death. And so it's an interesting thing that Moses doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but it is included. And, so, um, and it's put in this section of uh, com coming after idolatry and uh, just before just before food issues. So it's an interesting interesting thing. And as I recall from certain um, the images of, of Egyptians, that the shaving of the head is also quite popular. Yes, it was. It was definitely was. They valued um, a clean shaven clean shaven head, um, and uh, which is bizarre because then they turned around and put little wigs on. Um, but anyway, <laughs> seems to be a, a thing that they did, and um, which is what you see in the modern rabbinic world, is it not? What do uh, our lovely rabbinic ladies have to do when they get married? Shave. Shave their heads. And, uh, and then what do they all promptly do afterwards? Put on a wig. Put on a wig. And so they're all walking around with these full heads of hair. Uh, which is very interesting because they just took all their natural hair off and you scratch your head thinking, okay, how is this uh, different? You, you look beautiful because you've now got this luscious full head of hair. Um, uh, what was the purpose of that? It's an interesting thing that they do. 
Um, and there is still a debate in modern Judaism about it. Sir? Yeah, you suspect there's competition in terms of the quality and the expensiveness of the wigs. Oh right. my gosh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Somebody's making money somewhere. That's the spectacle part of it. <laughs> All right, so let's have a look um, at Aaron? Yeah? Yeah, before we go in, I, there was something that caught my attention was in um, verse number 21. It says that I'm um, talking about the food that um, are unclean. But you said you can give him to the stranger. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it sounds a little bit, um, you know, kind of double standard. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing that a lot of people, especially the Orthodox Jews, will say, no, the, um, they will use it to make an argument for the no other height law. And yep. says, you see, this, this part doesn't concern you because the law permits you to eat all this. Yep. That's this is just the animals found dead. Yes. So this is for animals yeah, it's that not, found dead. Yeah. It's not talking about unclean food. Yeah. So we'll talk about clean and unclean and the meaning thereof in just a minute. Uh, or unclean animals. Unclean animals. Okay. This one relates to uh, the finding of something that's already, already dead. Okay. And, uh, and what you can and can't do with it. Um, and, yeah, it does seem to be... Even though it's, it's only for dead animals, it's still, as uh, Shimshon is saying, a double standard. I can't have it, but it's okay to sell it to the guy who's living next door. Right? Now that, that's fine. Um, why would he be living next door? What's his attraction to the Jewish people and to the God of Israel? And yet he can have the, uh, the, uh, he can have the dead animal, but I, but I can't. Okay. All right, so let's have a look in context. This, 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 um, everything, the, the Bible is always produced in context. And the context, in terms of food, is that in most ancient cultures, eating had both religious uh, significance and meaning. Um, food seemed to have a meaning for most cultures. Where did it come from? What can we do with it? Um, uh, Cultures believed in gods mainly. There, there were, I can't think of any atheistic cultures per se. So theologies of how the animals came to be um, is developed in many different ways in many different cultures and which ones were sacred and how they could be eaten. You see different forms all over the world. Go to India, somehow cows have become sacred uh, and there are different uh, uh, animals in ancient history that were that could or could not be eaten oddly enough egypt had a period under under the hyksos dynasty where pig was forbidden so depending on where you place the exodus you can even see that the israelites came out of a period where pig was already forbidden but it certainly wasn't forbidden in canaan which you find a lot of in antiquity in jewish tradition this, uh, this idea of food and food law has become known as kashrut. I'm sure you've all heard of that. Okay? And, uh, and you have to have kosher certificates in all of your restaurants. And in fact, just about every store has to have a kosher certificate. I remember going into a store that sold balloons. All right? Plastic balloons that you filled up with helium so that you could 
you know, have a nice birthday party. It was my daughter's birthday, so I was buying helium balloons. And on, as I went to the counter to, to pay, I noticed that on the counter for everyone to see was this big piece of paper saying, my store is kosher. And I looked at him, and he was a secular Jewish guy, and I said, looked around the shop, and I'm going, where? Is any, any chametz in this store? There's, there's no food at all in this store. How do you need to have a kosher certificate? Um, and he just said, look, you know, it's just a tax. Some rabbi comes in, I give him 400 shekels, he writes me a piece of paper. You know? um, it's another way of unfortunately making money. But, but it's a big deal for this, for this country. Kosher comes from a verb, uh, kasher, which actually means fit. In this case, fit for human consumption, what you can and can't eat. All right? And so the, the Jewish people, in terms of their context, remember, they've, just, they've come out of Egypt. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, yes, but they came from Egypt. What were their dietary habits in Egypt? Anyone know? Anyone familiar with the history of the diet of Egypt? What did the, what did the Israelites miss in the desert? Do you remember? Meat and things like that. Garlic, onions. Yes. Yeah, uh, they missed the breads. They missed yeah. the onions. They missed the cucumbers. They, the Egyptians had a, a very well-balanced diet. Uh, water was not sanitary as we would know it. So people had obviously, they'd watched people drink water from the Nile and get sick. So they decided that was a really bad idea. So they created this substance, uh, which we call beer but it wasn't like the beer we drink it was actually quite thick like a milkshake and it was mm. packed with vitamin b from the um from the barley grains and 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 such mm. so it was actually quite a health drink okay so um you're looking at a society that um ate and drank uh, quite well and it was packed with vitamins and minerals uh and as i said there was this period in, is, in Egyptian history when they were ruled by these people called the Hyksos. And no one's 100% sure where they come from. They're defined as the shepherd kings. And uh, they, as part of their diet, they forbade the eating of pig. Okay? And so depending on when the exodus occurred, and there is a debate as to when this occurred, um, the Israelites may have left Egypt while you could consume pig, in which case they probably did while they were in Egypt, but, um, or they may have been in Egypt under the Hyksos dynasties, in which case they would not. But either way... I've heard, I've heard that the Hyksos were the uh, Israelites. Yes, I, I've heard that, that as well, um, which would then, would then try and describe as to when did the Israelites get a dietary law. Because uh, it's interesting that the, that the Hyksos were the ones that uh, forbid, forbade the eating of, of, um, of things. But the point is, to, regardless of what dates we're talking about, um, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were already living within a culture that already had dietary rules. Okay? There were things you could and couldn't eat. There were ways you sacrificed to gods and how you consumed meat. Now they come into the desert and they get a refined and or expanded um, uh, list of dietary rules. 
every nation seems to have, have one, so why would Israel be any different? Okay. So, another... So the, yeah? Yeah. The other day, a friend of mine asked me a really good question. He said, so why didn't they eat all the animals that they left with? And they had to eat the manna. That's a very, a very good question, Bernardo. And, um, okay, Though most of you know that I study with a small group of rabbis twice a week. Uh, yes, most of you know that? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, you, um, you pay them. <laughs> I do, yeah, you pay, yeah, that's right, you do. You always pay your teacher, that's true. At the end of every lesson, we stand up and we give the guy 50 shekels. And um, whether we liked it or not, it's actually irrelevant. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, he 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 gets his he deserves his money for his preparation of the subject. And I always ask him questions. I always stay afterwards, and I ask a lot of these guys. And when when it comes time for us to read these passages, Bernardo, I ask, "Come on, man! They left Egypt, and they had flocks, and they had cattle. How the heck are they starving?" Um, it's a good question. And do you know what the answer is? They don't know. It, 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 they, 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 they don't know. They understand that Israel had flocks. They understand that they left with flocks and that they entered the land with flocks. But they also understand that while they're wandering in the desert, they're not you know, planting large fields of tomatoes and cucumbers and things. So there is going to be an issue with diet somewhere along the line. And, um, uh, and, and they, they can't just sow a field of barley and wait for three months, okay? They, they, uh, they've got, they do have concerns. And uh, so while at the same time that they do have supplies and provisions with them, they're also in a desert and, 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 and as a mobile group uh, are, are scavengers for, for a limited period of time. And God provides, and God provides both quail uh, on, on a number of occasions, and he provides the bread of heaven. Good question, no answer. But yeah, yeah, no answer, unless the only assumption, and I repeat, I assume, is that they kept the animals for worship, for, for sacrifice. Absolutely, because didn't, didn't uh, uh, Moses say to Pharaoh, let us go into the desert to sacrifice? Yep. Yep, so they, he, he did say that. That was one of the things that we're going to go and worship. He didn't say we're going to come back. He just said we're going to go and worship. He, he never, never promised to return. Um, it could be. It could be. Um, but oddly enough, in, in Jewish commentary, that's never one of their answers, which is interesting. Okay. But, uh, but it, it could be. Yeah, Aaron, we can also look at it in this wise, that um, there is no amount of um, food or animals that they could have left Egypt with that would have lasted them for the entire time they spent in the wilderness. They cannot move with um, the food like the animals that will last them for 40 years. So yeah. I, I believe that God was augmenting so that they will have a lot of things to finally arrive when they, when, when they arrive the promised land. They will not arrive there empty-handed. And, and, they, and they arrived with a goodly, a goodly portion of flocks. Because remember, um, in the previous chapters of, of Deuteronomy and, and, and Numbers, um, the Reuben and Gad say, listen, we've got such great flocks. We need to have this land to graze. And, uh, so God had blessed them, and, and they had sustained uh, quite well. Yeah, absolutely. What about, and, then, and then I think about Noah. 
you know, he took many pairs of the clean animals and then there was only one pair of the non-clean. Then you're in the ark, how much can a mammal produce, uh, you know, they wouldn't, I mean, if you could technically, as he said, you could eat everything, but then there's only a pair of the unclean. And at most they would maybe have uh, on the ark possibly um, some baby cubs or whatever, but again, the whole concept of the... The tradition is that all the animals went to sleep and they went on the ark. That's the tradition. It doesn't say that it's... Right. But, so um, he wouldn't be eating unclean, then he would only be eating the clean, which was also well, for at, food as well as for worship. At this point, at this point, um, clean and unclean animals in Genesis are not in relation to food. They're, 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 the animals are designated as clean and unclean, but you're not allowed to eat any of them. So clean and unclean in Genesis isn't actually related to food. It's related to worship, what you can and cannot sacrifice to the Lord. Once you get to Deuteronomy, the people entering Canaan, clean and unclean shifts a little. It adds to this, this the element of these are the things you can eat and these are the things you can't eat, coupled with what you can and cannot sacrifice to God. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when it gets to that, those passages because it's true. Clean and unclean already exists before, before Mount Sinai. And, you, and even before we can actually eat them. So it has nothing to do with what you can eat. And, and, um, and this leads me to the next um, uh, uh, um, topic I was going to say. When I, when I was growing up, sorry, sorry, Neville? Can I just jump in with a thought about manna? Yep. Um, I get the impression that it maybe helped, it, it supplemented their diet significantly with carbohydrates. How do I know this? Well, there's a curious little verse here in Numbers 11 that says, Now manna was like coriander seed, its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Like donuts. <laughs> so, I quite love donuts. Really, okay. really versatile, and you know, you, I get the impression that it's you know a, for, a, a source of carbohydrate from. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, new, new theory. God has a sweet tooth. Okay, I wonder how much that one will hold on to. Karen, <laughs> excuse me. Um, this is Karen. Um, I'm just wondering. Um, have you ever asked? Uh, your rabbi that you study with, um, if um, the idea of kosher today has anything is just related to food or if it could be related to something else? Um, like, like, if, like if, if in Noah's day, if the idea of clean it, it always puzzled me if unclean animals was such a big deal, why they let them on the ark in the first place. Um, so if the idea of clean and unclean has nothing nothing to do with food, right. could you then make the argument with them today that it still really doesn't, the idea of kosher doesn't really have anything to do with food? Um, do you understand? On, on, yes, I do. Because on one level it doesn't. And, and, we need, and we need to, as we wrestle with the things that are in this chapter, we need to look at the big picture. 
what really is God saying to the people of Israel? Why are these rules being laid down? Um, what is their intention? And because as, as we begin to study it, we will have to look that God has made all these animals. Has he not? Yes. And when he made creation, he looked down at the world and he said, it is good. And that included a whole bunch of pigs, right? And so you might go, oh, my gosh, what, what's going on here? You know, there's grasshoppers, there's mosquitoes, there's cockroaches, there's locusts. By the way, we can eat those locusts, which is just bizarre, okay? Um, and, uh, and yet God says, oh, this is good. And so we need to, we need to put everything into its context and see what is God asking the children of Israel to do and why. Because when I was growing up, uh, the thing that I would remember as a child when, when, when being approached to these texts is it's got to do with health. Everything's got to do with health. God is so wise that uh, these food lords all were to protect people to be healthy. I was probably talking to Seventh-day Adventists at the time. Okay. Um, here's a, a, a fact. There are no health benefits attached to this diet. There is no evidence there isn't because people can drink like fish, smoke like chimneys, eat pork all the time, and they'll live to 120. Oh, and by the way, China, which has the highest consumption of pork diet, still lives to 98 years on average, which is more than Arabs who do not have pork in their diet because they're forbidden. Mm. So eating or not eating pork, does not affect your health. That is a lie. People, uh, articles that say that are not based on science. Okay? So what about all the porcine flu and like the swine flu and all those yep, stuff? You also I mean, it's proven flu. that. Yeah, you get bird flu, which is bird, which you get from birds you're allowed to eat and you're allowed to eat locusts. You're allowed to eat locusts, right? Which are, are not the most great thing for your diet and plus most cultures don't actually eat them anyway so it actually isn't true Bernardo there is no actual medical evidence that says that this diet was related to food it's actually something else and we need to study it what is God and it's actually here in the text but we will have a look at it why is God asking his people to modify their diet in this way and that's a good thing so, the, uh, there are no health benefits to this. Okay? Cultures that eat pork actually have longer life expectancy than those that, like for the Arabs, that, that do not. It's something else in their culture is killing them. The laws are connected to something else. And in Leviticus, we find laws regarding sexuality and diet in relation to holiness. So you have a chapter in Leviticus which talks about diet. And you have a chapter in Leviticus which talks about sexual practice. And it's in relation to your holiness before the Lord. Okay? And so uh, we'll have a look at that. The laws help define purity so that the community could properly approach God in worship. There are certain ways to worship the Lord. and You could only worship the Lord when you were clean and there were things that could make you unclean and that included sex 
having relations with your wife, which is a good thing and fulfills a mitzvah to fulfill the earth, still made you ritually unclean. You couldn't approach the Lord. Same with the eating of certain foods made you unclean. And then you couldn't meet the Lord. Touching and so, dead animals. And touching dead animals. Yes. Or people. Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so notice that in the previous chapter of Deuteronomy 13, idolatry comes with a punishment. What is not in this chapter? There are no punishments for punishments, eating. Punishments, yeah. Right? There's no punishment. So if you ate pork, let's just say you sat down and you had a pork chop. Is it a sin? Correct. It is not a sin. It makes you unclean. Do you see a difference? Well, isn't yeah? define sin? Okay, I know what you're trying to do. But no, no, I'm, uh, it's, it's an honest question. I'm not trying to okay. do anything. And here's the honest answer. In Yom Kippur, when you list, the, the, when you say the prayer Al-Chet, which literally means all sins, you list a litany of sins, all kinds of sins. You name it, I mean, they got it. Thinking about this, doing this, all kinds of, the, the sins are unbelievable. And you confess to every single one, even if you ain't done it. But you never confess to eating an unclean animal. It's forbidden, but it is not a sin, and there is no punishment. Can it and fall under obedience then? Well, yeah, yes, it depends right on your definition of sin. Well, in that case, yeah, any form of disobedience is a sin. But, yeah. exactly. but in the yeah. New Testament, guys, I can maybe just jump in for a second. In the New Testament, like breaking God's laws, sin is lawlessness, right? So if you break Correct. God's law, that's what the definition of sin is. Okay, sure. So, it's a, it, you, could, so you could say that breaking a sin, a breaking the law is a sin. But in this case, there is no punishment for the sin. Right, I get That's it. different. Yeah. So, Aaron, when, when you become, if you become unclean by eating, say, pork, do you have a set amount of time where you can become clean again? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in terms of cleanliness and uncleanliness, the rabbis today say that the entire Jewish community in the world is unclean. And and why is why are they unclean? Anyone know? No temple, really. That's right. There's no red heifer. There's no way, according to Rabbin, and according to the Torah, if you don't have the ashes of a red heifer, you can't make the nation uh, pure. And so the nation remains. They have mikvahs, yes. But if you actually push uh, a rabbi, they'll say, no, no, we're actually still unclean. Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, um, so remember, cleanliness and uncleanliness are not sins. How do you know this? Because Jesus was baptized every time he went to the temple for ritual uncleanliness. Uncleanliness is not a sin. So if, if, if Jesus 
buries his dad, which is a good deed. Okay, Joseph dies. Can't just leave him in the ground. The mitzvah is to bury the dead. You touch a dead body, you are unclean. But that's not a sin. You have a mikveh to get rid of that. You have a baptism to get rid of that. But it is not a sin. And so when you look at the food laws, please notice this is about, we call it clean and unclean. In Hebrew, it's tamay v'tahor, pure and impure would be the best translations. So it's what makes you pure and what makes you impure. But it is not in relation to a punishment. There are no prayers on Yom Kippur that say, Dear Lord, forgive me for eating pork. That doesn't mean that you can eat. It is forbidden. And so now you ask the question, why is it forbidden? Is that, is that confession that you're talking about, is that rabbinical law or is that biblical law? Of course, it's rabbinical law. Yeah. So, yeah. But according, if, to the Bible, if, according to the Bible, dude, there is no punishment for eating pork. No, but hey, it's Aaron, called I, an abomination. Can I add? Let me just put this in there. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. If you see, hey, Samson. Oh. <laughs> all right, all right, go ahead. Let us I was after Bernardo. I was after Bernardo. <laughs> it's a, this issue a is a hot topic. No, it really is. It's a hot topic in the Jewish world, but actually not as much as it's a hot topic in the Christian world. Because when, Aaron, I have a, when we intersect the Jewish world, we come up with this food law and we often miss the Hebraic context. Jews don't think about this. They just go, oh, no, it's forbidden. They go, oh, we, we contemplate, it's a sin, it's this, and I've got to do that. And they go, no, it's just forbidden. That's it, it's just forbidden. There's no prayer to get rid of, of, a, of, of eating pork. Because as you'll notice what Yeshua says, as are the other rabbis, she come out one day out the back end. They're gone. Mm. <laughs> Aaron, what about the Lord? Wait, I, so I have a question real quick. Um, okay, Yvonne and then David. Yeah. I think Yvonne Samson and then David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyways, um, but anyways, and Isaiah, just a quick question. In Isaiah, so there's uh, it's final judgment. It talks about the final judgment of the coming of the glory of the Lord. And then Isaiah 66, 17, it says, Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the garden, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. That's an Isaiah. Then, I, then that as a comment, and then I heard, and and there's there's been articles written about in the end times, even the pig. According, I know this is a rabbinical a thought that eventually the pig itself will become kosher. And what do you have? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Okay, it's true. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay, it's true that there is a rabbinical saying. That, uh, and, and in Hebrew, it, it's a play on words, okay? It's from Rabbi Rashi, okay, who's uh, 11th century. He's, at, uh, he's in the late, he's like the 1090s, so he's at the same time as the beginning of the Crusades. He's French. He's a French rabbi uh, living in whatever is going on in France. And he says, Israel." His famous saying, in the days of the Messiah, pig, chazir, 
Yichzor, which is a play on words, will return to Israel. Why is he saying this? Because there is a debate going on in Judaism, even to this day, that when the Messiah comes, what happens to Torah? Does it stay the same or does it change? And the, in, and the, the question is, what is its intention? Is the Torah intended to safeguard a people until Messiah? Or is the Torah so absolute that even God has to obey his own Torah? Okay? In which case it's even higher than God. And so, and you end up with, with in Jewish tradition, two streams. Even to this day, you will have rabbis that will say, no, when the Messiah comes, obviously he's going to change things. He's the Messiah. How can he not? Right? And things will change. Eventually the wolf will lie down with uh, the lamb. Okay? Uh, yeah. Correct? Yeah. The, the, the wolf, yeah. actually. The, the, we think it's the lion, but the text is, is wolf. Okay? The wolf will lie down with, with the lamb. Uh, the, the predator stops being predator. Things go back to the way they meant to be prior to, to, uh, to, uh, to Mount Sinai. Um, but there are other people who say, no, 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 no. When the Messiah comes, he'll obey the Torah and he'll make all the world obey the Torah. And everybody will obey the Torah. And, then, and so you have Jews in, in today who say, no, Gentiles have to obey the Torah. And then you have other Jews that say, no, they have to obey the seven laws of Noah. And there are other Jews that say, no, Gentiles don't have souls, they don't count. Okay? You've got all kinds of streams okay, within, within, within Judaism. So there, the, there is one expectation today, uh, which is a thousand years ago, is that um, when the Messiah comes, things, things, the Torah will change, which is in the, in the, in the New Testament, you kind of see both of those being melded together. You have parts of Moses, right? Moses is being read in the synagogues. And they, that stays the same. But at the same time, Paul comes along and says, you know, before the advent of the Messiah, the Torah was our shield. But now we got the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the Torah is not valid. It doesn't say it's very good. It doesn't say you get rid of it. That's not what he said. But he now says in the light of the Messiah, there's something else and that is the, is the Holy Spirit. So now those two are tracking together. So it gets, it gets complicated. It's not as simple as everybody thinks. Okay? So just a quick question. So is it true, though, that Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets as a New Testament in, in his first return? So therefore, like, we don't have to keep the Sabbath? Or we, like, do you feel that, do Jewish Christians, how do you guys think about that? Sure. Well, I'm going to actually quote um, David Pelegi, uh, who's the rector of Christchurch. Okay? Rector is the good Latin word for rabbi. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So the, the, mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how we get that word. Right? Rectors of churches are rabbis. Okay? This is the Latin mm -hmm. word for teacher. And okay. he said this, the, uh, a, a, a common Christian view is that Jesus came down from heaven and uh, he hopped in a car and he went for a drive on the road. And he obeyed every single road rule. Right. He didn't tailgate. He indicated to change lanes. 
He didn't speed, he didn't go too fast, he didn't go too slow, he stopped at stop signs, he stopped at red lights, he was very generous when turning left, uh, he, he picked up passengers, I mean, the guy was awesome. After obeying every single road rule, road rule, he indicated very gently and he calmly pulled off to the side, got out the car and said, now you can all drive like hell. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, but that, that's actually not true. The, the Hebraic understanding of the term to fulfill the law means to put it into practice. Right. So, for, so for example... To uphold. Uh, correct, to uphold. Yes, mm -hmm. to, to, to literally continue to, to figure out how you do it. So um, a, a, fr a Jewish friend might say to me, Aaron, how do you fulfill the command to honor your parents? Yeah, it says in the Bible, honor your mother and father. Okay, so... Do I just do that once? I honor them once, and then afterwards I can give them the middle finger and you know tell them how bad they are. And you know, you know. no, I say something like I honor my parents by um, I live in Israel, they live in Australia, but but on Shabbat uh, we Skype. That's our day to to sit and have a, an hour long chat. We talk about the week. We have fellowship and you know, sit and have a cup of coffee and 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 talk. And I do that how often? I do that every week. Okay, I honor my parents by letting them know how I'm doing and I ask them how they're doing. And they get the opportunity to, to nice. share. Others will say that I honor my parents by going over and mowing the lawn. Um, right. I, I and so, so Jesus fulfills the, 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 the Torah, but that means he t tells us how to put it into practice, but not actually doing away with it. So, so actually we, we, so we try, you guys, okay, so Jews tried to follow the law, and then in the New Testament, it talks about, like Paul explains how the law led us to Christ, that we couldn't fulfill every law, because if we break it in one point, we're guilty of it all, and therefore, it's not even possible for us to fulfill the law in a human way, right? Well, the... I mean, that no, no Jewish person would say, you know, I am fulfilling all of the law, absolutely. That's why they have confession. And, but that's uh, why Christ, Christ came in the sense that he literally and practically and physically in his life fulfilled the law completely so to, in our place so that we could because we could that, do it. That, that's the, that's the, the view, the Christian view that stems from um, predominantly Christianity that's been translated or um, thought about via lawyers because we view faith and relationship to God as a transaction. Okay. That is, I'm bad, I need a covering, Jesus is my <coughs> covering, now I'm good. And so there's an element of truth to that, but that is not everything. And so... The, in, even in the, in the Jewish world the, the, uh, and in the New Testament of the Jewish world, um, they didn't talk like the way we talk. For example, Peter in the book of Acts is standing in chapter 3 in the temple, chapter 2 actually, in the temple. He's got a perfect opportunity to say, the blood of Jesus has set you all free. He's the ultimate sacrifice. All the sacrifices that are going on behind me are completely useless. But he doesn't say that. 
at all. What he actually says, even though he's filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues, he says, repent. And that's actually the message. It's the message of the Hebrew Bible and it's the message of the New Testament. Repent. And repentance. Yeah. Aaron? It's a, there's a very dangerous idea on, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure who was talking, but uh, Sharon, the whole idea of this, you know, grace versus law. And so now, you know, God has done this all. And so Jesus, now we don't have to do anything. But the Bible, the new covenant says, I will put my law within their hearts. I will make, so it's, we love the law um, because uh, not out of, uh, you know, the Torah, the instruction out of love and not for as a burden because at the very end, in the book of Revelation, it says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's in uh, Revelation 14, 12. It also says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And you also had mentioned that sin is actually lawlessness. And at the end, there will be a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, that will change times and seasons and dates. And and uh, we see those times being changed. But all throughout the uh, the Hebrew Bible, you know, this concept, you know, as of the new covenant, it's it's not by obligation, but it's out of love. So if we love him, we will show that in, in obeying his commandments. Aaron, a question here concerning, I mean, we have the food laws, we have all these all these laws going around. And when, when we know that Lord Jesus has given us the new covenant, right? Right, yeah. uh, for the remission of our sins. But uh, how, what what do you make of this verse? I, I know that it's aiming at food, but in general context, by Paul in one Corinthians six twelve, it says, "All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any." Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, what is Paul referring to there? And um, and uh, in, in in relation to this answer. I'm going to uh, 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 mention an incident that occurred while I was in Denver, Colorado at a, at a church that I was been privileged to be um, a, a teaching pastor of for a very, very short time, um, only about six months. Um, one of those mega churches. Never, never been involved in a mega church before. We don't want to do it again. But um, <laughs> okay, there's just so many people. Okay, um, they, they told me, okay, Aaron, you're going to be in charge of the Sunday uh, Bible study. And I'm thinking, Bible study, 30 people. I walk into a room, there's 300 people. And uh, these are the people that are waiting to go to the main service, which has 2,000 people. And they do that three times. So you have to do these 300 people three times. And you think, okay, where I come from, that's actually a church. Now, of course, when we talk about Africa, that is a church. Okay, but, um, <laughs> but this while I while I was in 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 Denver and I was teaching this this girl got up and she asked young lady in, in her young twenties and she asked, "What does it mean for me to be free in Christ?" And I looked at her, and straight away I knew, probably by the by the spirit, what she was saying. She wanted to have sex with a boyfriend. I'm free in Christ. I can now shag my boyfriend. But I said, you're free in Christ. Does that mean you can now you can do whatever you want? No. Freedom doesn't actually mean 
you can do whatever you want. Freedom actually means something else. The, the modern culture that we have of, of the idea of freedom is that I can do whatever I want. But that's not freedom. Not really. In fact, that's actually a chain. That's actually a secret trick of the right. enemy. And oh my gosh, has he got a lot of people trapped in that. And I think we could all probably give some pretty good stories uh, about that. Okay. So, um, I mean, we're raising some pretty big questions about, I, I, I kind of suspected that it was going to go this way. <laughs> the, 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 it's a big issue. Um, you have this entire chapter, half of it's about food, the other half's about tithes. Um, and when it gets to the, the food portion, it, it becomes a very interesting topic. Clean and unclean, or the pure and impure, actually already exist before the flood. How can that be? Because we're not allowed to eat anything yet. So what does it actually mean for an animal to be pure or impure? And then when we finally do get a dietary rule, what does that mean in, in terms of eating and drinking it? Uh, and so it has a meaning and it has obviously, I, I think as part of my case, I'm going to say it has a meaning in a relationship with the Lord. Okay? and how we reflect our image of God uh, to the world. And so verse 1 is part of that. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. Now that is a packed statement, even right there. Okay? Moses begins by reminding the people of their lineage. And before we get to food, as part of being the children of God, when it comes to burial customs, okay, there are things you can't do. And so you get a do not. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead because you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So we don't begin with food. We actually begin with burial customs and how you mourn the dead. And uh, what's the obvious thing we're not allowed to do as part of our mourning procedure for dead people, our loved ones? What? what? Shaving the head. Okay. Shaving the head, cutting yourself. Right to them. Sorry? Don't pray to them. Okay, well, don't pray to them. <laughs> don't pray to them. Although you do see by the Second Temple period, they're baptizing the dead. Okay, now that's a separate issue. We'll talk about that perhaps as well. Um, <laughs> but in this context, what's, what are we not allowed to do as part of our mourning procedure? Cut yourself. You can't disfigure yourself. Okay, the tradition for other nations, and, and definitely the one that they'd come from in Egypt, but also the ones that they were going to go to, is when, you, when, you, uh, when someone had died, part of your mourning process was a disfigurement. You know, Self-flagellation, some cultures even cut off parts of their fingers, 
uh, some people even threw themselves on the fires of their loved ones and they burnt to death too. Um, but why is disfigurement an issue for God? Okay. Th think about some uh, um, uh, because, because we're made in the image of God. So if we disfigure ourselves, then okay. you're yes. not. Okay, they carry that theme to, and take it to the priesthood. What were the priests of God not allowed to be? Um, they, they, they were not allowed to be deformed. Correct. Deformed people could not practice, you know, as a priest here. Correct. And in our current culture, people would say, gee, that seems very unfair, you know. Why aren't why aren't uh, disfigured and disformed people allowed to to worship the Lord? And and you would go, wow, you know, um, that's a really good question. Let's look at the context of the worship of the Lord. God is pure. He is life. He is holy. He is everything that is good. So. If his priests need to reflect his image of goodness, of wholeness, of purity, then from the outside, they have to be genetically perfect. I wear glasses. I wouldn't be disqualified for serving in the temple because God, you wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple of God as a visitor. Okay, I'm decided to go visit Jerusalem and see what this, you know, God of Israel is like. How do I, I get to know him? I can't see an image of him. His image is in his people. And in his temple, they all have to look good. If I'd gone to the temple of God and they're all cripples and they're all sitting in wheelchairs, what would be my thought about the God of Israel? It wouldn't powerless. be this. Yeah, it's powerless. Be, yeah. Yes, exactly, Karen. It wouldn't be this figure of, oh, here's the guy that took me out of Egypt. He's the guy that drowned Pharaoh's armies. All, all you would see is a bunch of guys rolling around in their wheelchairs, going, you know, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And going, ah, oh, I think I'll, I think I'll, think I'll be okay, thanks. You know, I think I'll go, I'll go do Poseidon or some other buff-looking Greek god. You know. Um, and, and so God actually had an image. So there was actually a reason for it. It's not that God doesn't take care of the weak. In fact, Deuteronomy is a big flip on, on the strong versus the weak. Notice in Aaron's passage. Aaron, sorry, is, is this not also in context with the Lord saying God is God of the living? Sure. Yes, he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. But in our theology, where did the dead go? They go back to him, they go back to God. Yeah. So, so the, the initial, the initial uh, sentence is, don't disfigure yourselves like anybody else. Don't be like them. Your burial customs have to be different because our relationship to the Lord of life doesn't involve this cutting ourselves, this stabbing ourselves. But what does the Bible not say? So can you cremate or no, as Christians? <laughs> okay, well, that's a completely different issue. Um, 
the the in terms of cremation, okay. Um, Yes, there is no command in the Bible about how you bury people. Okay. And, and, and so you, you find a, a commandment at the beginning of Deuteronomy 14 about not what to do, sorry, about what not to do, but he doesn't give you a command about what to do. So I, I know what not to do in my no. mourning for the dead. I don't disfigure myself. Well, cremation could be serious disfiguring. <laughs> Well, no, no, no. The, the disfigurement is for you, not the person. Oh, the alive person. Okay. The alive person is disfiguring themselves, not, not the, uh, the dead person. Because um, if we're honest, when someone dies, if you, if you follow the actual biological process of how the body decays, it's horrible. Okay. Yeah, you literally fill with gas and explode. So let's let's not think that you know we're all just you know decaying nicely here. Okay, we fill up with bugs, we fill up with gas, we leak everywhere, and then the body explodes. Okay, luckily we don't all see all that because we're all in a in a tomb. Okay, um, but it's not pleasant. Um, but. The Bible doesn't say how to mourn the dead. It just says, don't do this when you're mourning the dead. So, how do you mourn the dead? What do you think, guys? There's no command. All we know is we're not allowed to disfigure ourselves. And so... I, I, Eric, I, if, if we think about this... Ultimately, from a Christian perspective, uh, we should ultimately rejoice each time somebody dies as a Christian, right? Because they're going home. We should. But that doesn't stop our emotions from missing a loved one. I know that um, in the Salvation Army, they don't have funerals. They, they don't call them funerals. They call them victory parades. Right? And they sing very happy songs, which is very interesting. In the modern Jewish tradition which actually was a, um, a, a, an old tradition, they would mourn for seven days. Okay? You would have a seven-day period of mourning where um, you would tear uh, your clothing and you would sit, called sitting sheva, okay? and, um, and, uh, and then you would uh, get up and start life normally. Uh, Bernardo, yes, Tobit was counted righteous because he buried the dead. Burying the dead is one of the gimilut chasadim, one of the acts of loving kindness. What is one of the acts of loving kindness? These are the actions that God did in the Bible. And there are about eight or nine of them. And God buried Moses, so therefore we should bury Moses. So burying the dead is a good thing. But it doesn't tell you how you mourn for a dead person. Okay? Because burying the dead is such a uh, righteous action, there are groups of religious Jews in this country and anywhere in the world where there are large Jewish communities um, called uh, Zaka. And uh, uh, after a suicide bombing, okay, or when somebody blows himself up, these guys will crawl around the pavement and pick up every little last scrap of human flesh and they will bury it. Okay, so even though this is a terrorist 
who murdered people, they will still collect every bit of him they can find and bury him with all prayers and all that kind of stuff because that's what God does. And I want to be like God, so I'm going to bury the dead. But the Bible still doesn't tell you how to mourn. So actually mourning and how you handle the idea of, of, getting, of grieving a loved one is actually up to us, guys. And some people handle it better than others. Yes? Okay. There, there are those who, who never get over the death of a loved one. Okay. We, all, we probably all know people like that in our community. And there are others who after several weeks will go, well, you know, yeah, my husband, he's in heaven. I'm just going to get on with life and have fun because I, I know what my, my hubby's doing. He's smiling down, cheering me on. And, and so uh, it's an interesting uh, concept of how we handle the mourning process. But what we can't do, guys, is, is, is disfigure ourselves. You don't mar the image that we are made in. You can your heart can mourn, but your body cannot. Okay. Aaron, a quick question. Um, this whole idea of the sitting the seven days of Shevat, is that, I know Job, that people say that that's where that came from, or do you know where, or is there a biblical principle uh, behind Job that? Does it, David does it, uh, Tobit does it. Okay, there's a bunch of them that do it. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very well-established process. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of my rabbi friends, a guy called Mordecai, sent me an article uh, last week that he had written on Shavuot, the idea of sevens, okay? And he said, you know, Passover is a festival that's based on, you know, lunar, okay? We've got um, months. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very astrological thing, the moon. It travels around the world uh, four weeks every month. Uh, Shavu, uh, Sukkot talks about um, festivals. We have, we have the sun that gives us seasons. Okay, everybody around the world goes, where does seven, where does a week come from? There's no universal galactic reason for seven, right? Okay, yes, I know we have creation week, sure. But if you take that away, where does in nature seven come from? It doesn't exist. Interesting, interesting. The French, after the French Revolution, tried to change the week into 10 days. It failed miserably. Right? They were. They did their best the to make days. a ten-day week. I mean, yeah. that just that just shows you how, how dumb the French Revolution was. Okay, but um, it failed miserably. Um, but it is interesting that this idea of seven comes in, and it's also universal. Even though there's nothing in nature that screams a week seven, all cultures have it. Now, isn't that interesting? There was something that when God made the world in, in seven days that somehow set this thing in it, um, and, uh, which is very, very interesting. Um, now, we're part of this world, and we have to leave this world, so we're all going to die. So we're all going to encounter someone who dies, loved ones, family, friends, just the guy next door. So we're going to have to encounter and handle death, and how we do it, well, that's amazing. Um, and as, as believers in, in, in the Messiah and, and believers in, our, in, an, in the world to come, I think we have something that we can share. But for, for the children of Israel, as they're in, about to enter Canaan and about to be very different as part of the lights to the nations, Moses tells them, don't disfigure yourself. 
when it comes time to bury the dead, don't. And his reason, because you are children of the Lord. You are a holy people. You are chosen from all the face of the earth to be a treasured possession. Now unpack that bit. Does God play favorites? What's the answer? <laughs> exactly. It gets yes. very complicated, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, how does he actually ultimately treat his favorites? He leads yeah. them to die in the desert and not come into the promised land. There you go. Disobedience. Deserved it. They were brats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, the the uh, this is again also a a a big debate within the Jewish world, and I've I've had the the pleasure and delight of being able to, to wrestle with some of these issues with some rabbinical friends. What does it mean to be a chosen people? Um, does God play favorites? And their answer, very rabbinic, of course, is they go, uh, no, God doesn't play favorites, but he always chooses the weak. And you go, oh, hang on a second. You've just contradicted yourself. They go, yep. They, you know, they... God loves the whole world that he sent his only son. Salvation in the Psalms is universal, not linked to one, to one nation. God is the God of the universe, not the God of Israel. He's not localized. Yet at the same time, right, on one hand it says this, on the other hand, God chooses. And who does he choose? Does he choose the strongest? Does he choose the best? No, he chooses the weakest, and that is so reflected in his Torah, because when you have a look, even to this, to the end of this verse, uh, end of this chapter, uh, in verse twenty-nine, when you're when you're divvying up your tithes, God says, so that the Levites, the foreigners, the ger, the fatherless, that is the orf orphans, and the widows, is all weak all the ones who don't have the weakest members of society. He says, you make sure that when you tithe, you give it to them. Right? So you've got this, 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 this God who at the same time doesn't play favorites, at the same time chooses, at the same time actually prefers the weak. Now that becomes uh, mind-boggling because in weakness... God gets to be strong. And, uh, and so uh, God chooses Israel when they weren't worth much. And he even says, you were the smallest of peoples. You weren't the biggest, the bravest, and the strongest. You didn't even have a country. And so if I'm like this, you make sure you mimic me. And you mimic me by taking care of the weak. And you'll definitely see the Messiah doing that when, when he comes. And as followers of the Messiah, who should also be imitators of God, then uh, we will be... Uh, it would behoove ourselves to do that too. And so um, the sacrifices that eventually get shared in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy, Moses will always mention, make sure you share these with the weak. You don't kind of get that in Leviticus, but you do in, in, in um, Deuteronomy. And that shows us, I think, a fair bit where Moses is coming from. Okay. So... It, the idea of being chosen 
produces a, a level of responsibility. If God regards Israel as something special, then they have to conduct themselves as something special. And so we now have special laws. Idolatry, food, sex, okay? So, and how you treat strangers. So the laws that we're getting now are not crazy laws that God is, is bashing people on the head saying, I want to destroy all your fun. No, God is saying you're a special people. So you're going to behave in a very special way. You're going to have a special diet. You're going to have a special way of worshipping me. You're going to have a special way of getting yourselves clean. You're going to have a special way of treating the weak that are in, 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 in your community. You, the, your behavior is so going to reflect my character, it's going to attract the Gentiles. In fact, as Deuteronomy says in chapter 4, verse 6, the way you're going to obey my commands, the other nations will say, what nation is so wise and so understanding? No one else does this. It's something. So when we look at these unclean food lords, there's wisdom in here. I don't get it at the start. Okay? Even rabbis don't get it. But they understand there's wisdom here. There's understanding here on a, on a much different level. Um, I've just noticed the time. Wow. We got through two verses. Okay. Great. Now yeah, we're really... Really getting through this book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but, but at, le at least we got through like the, the big grounding that, that comes in with um, clean and unclean. Because clean, and, and next week we're going to unpack this a little bit more. Clean and unclean exists before the flood. Clean and unclean exists before you can even eat food. Okay. Actually, there was a food prohibition already with Adam and Eve. Right, yep. you just, correct. There's, a, there's, there's always been um, uh, something you can't, can and can't do. So God makes the world, now he makes pigs. He does, doesn't he? I mean, these are not created by Satan. It's not like, like God made the world and then Satan went, okay, well, while God's not looking on day eight, okay, I'm going to make mosquitoes and bugs and pigs and that's going to really wreck creation. And, uh, and then God comes along and says, boys, you can't eat this stuff. No, God makes these things. He then turns around and says, you guys can't actually eat them, but they're there. And so you start trying to unpack, why? Why fill the earth with animals that I'm not allowed to eat? Why, why do this? What is it? And, and how in my action of obeying the instruction not to eat this, how does this affect my relationship with the Lord? How does this uh, not only affect my relationship with the Lord, but then turn around and reflect the Lord to, to a world that, that, uh, that doesn't know him? And so as we, as we study this, I think, um, uh, well, next week when we pick it up, uh, we'll focus a lot more on, on, on that sort of issue, clean and unclean. Hopefully we won't put too much over old ground, but um, we'll see where we go. Okay, any other questions related to our two verses? Well, this originally, too, we were vegetarian, right? So Genesis 1, we, we were just eating the vegetable stuff, and then was it a result of sin? In <laughs> ah, okay. We, we, <laughs> we, are, we are instructed only 
to eat vegetables in the garden. But, can, but, but Abel offers an animal sacrifice. Yeah, but that's a sacrifice, not to correct. eat. Correct. So that's correct. So the original idea of clean and unclean actually has nothing to do with diet. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is the reason why the, the clean and unclean food has nothing to do with health. It's not to do with diet. It's got to do with the way you worship the Lord. Now then, after the flood, God gives Noah the permission to eat whatever you want. Now, notice this. Yeshua never says to his disciples, let's all go back to the Garden of Eden and become vegetarians. No. Right? Yeshua never says at Passover, Okay, guys, I'm about to eat the Passover lamb, but actually I've decided not to do this. Instead of lamb, we're all having tofu, okay? And we're going to put that in the Gospels and we'll all understand that, um, you know, we won't kill anything. Vegetarianism is not part of New Testament teaching, okay? Oh, absolutely. No, I totally agree with you that everything's a goal. But why did it change in, in Chapter 8 in Genesis? Like, because then the animals were afraid of us where I get the impression they weren't before, right? Like, well, we all... That I, look, I have no clue per se. The, the, um, I'll look, try and look that up for you and ask around for some rabbinic responses as to that. Like, but the, but the, the actual text in Genesis doesn't yeah. think food to sin. Right. It doesn't say now you can eat because God's actually purified the world, right? All the evil people are all dead. All that's left are all the good people. And right. now says you can eat whatever you want. Okay, well, that's, so it's, it's got nothing to do with sin, okay? It's got nothing, it's got, but it's got something to do with a relationship. And Noah, and this is for next week as well, Noah offers an Allah. He offers a burnt offering, okay? Which is one of the sacrifices that are mentioned in Deuteronomy. So the first time it's ever mentioned in the Bible, it's actually given by a Gentile. Hey, Aaron, I also have a question. Um, I'm sorry. The animals that were offered to to in the in the uh, temple were also all. I mean, yeah, I'm curious how this is going to work for next week. I'm very looking forward to that. But the idea that the animals the animals that were sacrificed were all kashrus, right? So they were they were genetically and, and, perfect, right? And and you they wouldn't put a pig on the altar and things like that. So I'm just curious how this is going to work for yeah. next week. Just you know. Yeah. Throw it out there and so, see how that yeah. how so, that'll in, flesh itself yeah. out. Correct. In the, the, all, all the animals, the pure animals, were kept at a special place, and we know the name of the place, Migdal Eder, uh, not far away from Bethlehem. And uh, and it's true that in the Maccabees, um, pigs, the the, the the Greeks just tried to make Jews sacrifice pigs, uh, and so and so there was and, and they died, not wanting to do it. So they, you know, they, they understood the term forbidden probably a little better than we do. Okay? You usually tell a child, don't do this, it's forbidden, and they usually go and do it. Okay? Um, what you found in the second temple period is Jews would die rather than do something forbidden. Um, and so yeah. we have to remember that clean and unclean, I know it's a hard one to wrestle, clean and unclean does not come with a punishment. It comes with the term, this is forbidden. Okay. Uh, Aaron, yeah. 
on the on the subjects, you know, of course, it's a tough subject. Um, in Leviticus, um, people transmit uncleanliness, yes. and um, that is one of the reasons that um, the sacrifices, especially the daily sacrifice, and also on Yom Kippur, there is the sacrifice for the sins of the whole community of Israel, so yep. that the people will not die. If you read in the Yom Kippur, it says that the people will not die. They will not transmit their uncleanness to the temple. And if they do, then the presence of God goes away and the people will begin to die. So it's, even though eating um, non-kosher food is not, um, it's not te technically it's not a sin, but it can also transmit the uncleanness into the temple and result very catastrophic events in the Correct. life of the children of Israel. So even though it's not a sin, but it has, a, it has an effect in the life of the people. Correct. That, yes, make sure you say that again next week. Because okay. <laughs> cleanliness and uncleanliness, okay, the, the, real, the, the better translation would be pure and impurity. Yes. Yeah. Transmissible. Holiness yeah. is also transmissible, right? Yeah. You can actually transmit yeah. holiness to another person. And that's, and that's one of the reasons why in the New Testament it says she will be saved because of her husband or she will be saved because of childbirth. And you go, what? Where does that come from? It's like mm -hmm. there's this concept that it can be transmissible. And, and not only is it transmissible, but the, 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 the bad result, the uncleanliness, can push the presence of God away, okay? Just yeah. as powerful yeah. as sin can. And so the whole idea of cleanliness and cleanliness, which is what we'll look at next week, is in relation to our worship of God. How close can we get to God? How, how do we get ourselves to a state of purity when before the Lord, and one way was for uh, to be to, to make sure that our diets were a certain a certain way. Okay, um, make sure our sexual relations were a certain way. Make sure that our, our idolatry was, was taken care of. That we didn't, we didn't do these things, so that we as a people we behaved in a certain way, we ate a certain way, we didn't we dressed a certain way. Um, these things related to our worship of, of the Lord and how close he was within our, our presence. Okay. But that'll be for, for next week. Okay. Yep. Wow. That was a great study, guys. Thank you very much.